I was the project manager at the time of these organizations that helped oh, these wow. people on the street. Right? Yeah. This was my job. <laughs> yeah. And still, you're thinking the car. Now, that's a good option at this point because there was nothing else available. Hey there, if you've joined the podcast today, my name is Chris Jarvis. I work with companies on employee giving and volunteering programs. And my name's Jake McIsaac. I spend a lot of time thinking about public safety and restorative justice. So we are having conversations here that we've been having for 20 years. Yeah, the only difference now is we press record and share it with you. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we're going to talk to a friend of mine from Portland, Oregon, a city that is experiencing a lot of issues around homeless or unhoused neighbors, similar to what we discussed in the Maritime Provinces a couple episodes ago. His name is Andy Reid. He's got firsthand experience on both sides of the equation. He's got great insights and he's very knowledgeable. I'm still trying to figure out what's love got to do with any of this. Well, I think he nails that towards the end, so let's find out. Okay. Hey, Jake, uh, I thought we should follow up on our promise from our previous episode Which to one? continue to discuss our unhoused neighbors, housed neighbors, how they get along. And uh, I thought we should go, we should get an interesting story, firsthand source material for this conversation. Okay. So I'm happy to introduce a guest, another guest. We are so good on our follow through. We promise to be uh, doing this for everybody. Um, this year, and we have had a number of guests. We'll have some more. Andy Reid, uh, a friend, I would consider. Andy, would you consider us friends? Thank He's, you. I'm looking yes. yeah, it's okay, right. Andy, if you say no. <laughs> you don't feel forced. It actually makes for a better podcast. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, frankly, it's been more of a crush uh, on my part, Chris. So, um, <laughs> oh, no, no, it's going the wrong awesome. way. We we have been talking for years, and I finally got a chance to do a little project with Andy, and he's going to tell us a little bit about it. But Andy. Uh, Reed from Portland, Oregon. Thrilled to have you on the show with us today. Could you just uh, share a little bit about who you are, where you are, what you do? We'll dig into it. Andy's got a great story. I can't wait to talk about it with everyone. Uh, th thanks, guys. Um, yeah, I am. I'll start with kind of my, my most important identity. I'm a, I'm a father and a husband. I've got three kiddos. It's where I, where I spend the bulk of my time and energy is um, trying trying to raise them to do right by the world. Um, so yeah. that's first, first and foremost, uh, I work in an economic development organization. We do work for the city of Portland and our job is to help companies to grow and to become more inclusive. And so mm -hmm. that looks, looks like a lot of things. Um, you know, growth for growth's sake isn't really quite, quite the space we want to go. We discovered as an organization at Prosper Portland that we needed to lean pretty heavily into the inclusion piece back in 2015. And um, since then, we call ourselves an anti-racist organization, which which causes some 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 issues, frankly, because of our history of being one of the, the organizations that did a lot of dismantling of of communities, gentrification. We, we were at the heart of that for for many many years with racist practice. So, so you mean the government of the government of Portland or the administrative bodies historically? That's correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think yeah, many so, so people I, know that in Canada, the Canadian audience wouldn't know that Oregon was historically somewhat founded on or by individuals who held fairly prejudicial beliefs. 
Absolutely, our school system was designed by the KKK. So there you go. Okay, it just takes years to unpack. Just cut right to it. Bullseye. There you go. Like if I was going to say the most extreme (laughs) version might be if you invited the KKK into teacher children or set it all up. That like here we go. Would that ever happen anywhere? I actually didn't know that, Andy. That's uh, that's pretty pretty wild. And uh, so you're you're in Portland. Are you? Did you grow up in Oregon? I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I grew up in the um, the middle of one of the poorest communities that was redlined um, through these government and community and business efforts to uh, keep African Americans, in particular, out of certain parts of the city. So that's where I that's where I lived as a kid, um, growing up in the middle of the gang wars and the Crips and the Bloods and the crack houses. And okay, so I'm sitting with Andy, and we're having a beer after the event that we had, where we we're talking about how do we create in Portland a more inclusive supply chain for companies um afterwards we go to have this beer and we're talking and he drops this line you know i grew up crips and bloods i'm like wait portland oregon had this as a reality now this is hard on the heels of if you've not seen images downtown portland is quite full of unhoused neighbors who are living in tents and um Mm-hmm. Anyways, all of this led to an interesting conversation. But before we go any further, for those who are thinking, what is redlining? Why do you keep mentioning it? Well, I don't know if I'll get there, but I, I'm still back on trying to imagine. See, because my recent images of Portland were, were from, as a Canadian, post-George Floyd um, and defund police and and a whole you know, right. community saying, d- demanding a different experience of justice and, and, and law enforcement, public safety, like really large scale demonstrations and whole blocks of cities just for a long period, long time, a sustained sustained, uh, um, movement. It it felt like, so watching, I'm kind of interested in that before we get to the other stuff is what has that been like? And where, how's the situation now? Like what's the follow up been? It is a hard time. It's a hard time for a lot of cities on the West coast, I think. Feeling the hangover of COVID, I think, is maybe still still accurate. We have businesses that you know, have gone fully remote. We have those that have gone in two days a week. And so you have a, a pretty quiet city. The business community is you know, responding to the marketplace and doing what they need to do with their employees. Employees are demanding a different way of doing business. And so... And it's hard. It's still hard to find employees too, right? Like a lot of businesses and it's are still half hard capacity. to find employees. Yeah. I'm getting that from a number of companies saying, yeah. I, "I just can't get the workforce that I need." So, um, it, there, it's it's a it's a it's a strange time. That said, you know, having been to a number of places around the world and experiencing, you know, extreme extreme poverty, like seeing seeing it in other places, having some tents on the sidewalk, you know, it doesn't bother me, but that's. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's I like. I can walk the streets. That that said, some people do feel um, that safety is still like kind of the number one issue that needs to be dealt with. And you know that that's um, a really interesting angle that I hope we can visit, which is the visibility of unhoused neighbors make those people who have housing feel unsafe, which is mm-hmm. interesting. My first reaction isn't for their safety; it's their unhoused, unsafe situation makes me feel afraid for my for me myself. And there's a lot of bias about this community and whatnot, but that's what we want to unpack today. And you said when I was in Portland, there were streets and streets with tents on the, on mm-hmm. the sidewalks mm-hmm. and whatnot. And then I went, I've just been in Colorado in same situation, uh, streets lined with tents, 
uh, people living outside and the city came along, put boulders on the sidewalk to make it a little right. bit more right. uncomfortable. However, wow. that made for a nicer camping situation because you had better ways to tie up your belongings and that kind of thing. So it actually produced they are the opposite adaptive. effect. Yeah. Yep. Well, it, we all well, are. Because they're, sur- because they're surviving. I mean, I, I think that what might be most threatening is that you have folks who are um, making it and getting by right next to people who don't have to make these hard decisions every day. And I, yeah. I wonder mm-hmm. if that's what is unsettling and upsetting and scary for folks is that they just don't know what's next. How far will someone go to survive? And so we, we've mm-hmm. seen this around... Um, some of the encampments around Halifax and where, where I'm at is the neighbors directly in, in close proximity to these um, encampments really start to have a rhetoric around, you don't know what's next. There's this mm-hmm. foreboding fear that someone could, you know, right now they're outside of my yard, but maybe they're going to come in. What stops them from coming into mm-hmm. my house? And they mm-hmm. catastrophize. So Andy, you said something about that I hadn't thought of until you kind of said it. You're saying about the, the COVID hangover lots of people working from home and and it just dawned on me the the range of assumptions that lots of folks have made when they decided to shut down buildings uh, businesses that people had homes to work from like there's mm-hmm. probably a whole bunch of folks who we don't know actually what their living situations are and they're mm-hmm. existing next to us in offices and keeping it afloat day to day but is mm-hmm. has that does that uh, resonate with some of the things that you see? Well, now I think we're getting close to Andy's story, actually. Yeah, that kind of situation. <laughs> well, as, as you're describing that, I, I was looking at some UNICEF data and I've been watching the displacement trends for years because I work in this work in this area. And, right. you know, Ukraine obviously kicked things up into high gear again. Three years ago, we were at like 60 million, 65 million displaced in the globe. Uh, you're living in camps in different places, not not in their homes, as I described, being displaced. Mm-hmm. Now we're now we're over 100 million. Wow. So the the question are like, who who are we? Those that are displaced. It really is a much bigger conversation than dudes in a tent on the side of the street in Portland. Right. Because mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. tend to ca- categorize them as fairly one dimensional alcoholics or narcotic uh, users and just don't want to work. Yeah, and that that isn't the reality. Right. The communities that I have moved in and out of, you know, those that are undocumented workers coming up from Mexico, packing five to 10 to 15 people into a room because that's what they can afford or they can't actually rent because they don't can't literally don't have the ability to turn in an application because they don't have any rental history or they don't have credit Mm -hmm. scores, all of the systems that prevent a person who is trying to make a better life for him or herself actually do it and so we we scrap our way through life and we figure it out and yeah it's for those of us that are in in homes that are comfortable with the keys and the locks and the things if if you don't have and know that experience but i would say that there are many people in the united states that do have that experience they've had to move through the refugee camps they've had to leave domestic violence situations they've had like this is not an uncommon experience i think right which is exactly why you're on the show it's an unexpected story especially given your current role and your current work how you look and the assumptions i would make just looking at you you have had an experience with not having a place to live of sorts you made it work because this is what's interesting is to explore how this reality can happen given the right situation to almost everybody 
I feel like kind of rounding out the edges a little bit of, of context is maybe helpful. Yeah, the facts, of, the facts of losing my home, you know, there, there are things around that. But as I looked back at this conversation around how, how does somebody end up in a situation? How did I end up in a situation where I find myself unhoused for five years? Five years? Five years. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So that's, I I that was that. Uh, a great recession. Do we even talk about that anymore? The great recession of 2008? Yeah, we're by it. We're like, what's we're, the next big <laughs> thing that we can destroy? <laughs> we, we've moved on. Um, we've moved on too easily. The, the context is... And and I appreciate your emphasis on the brain and the, the neuro side of things. I think about my childhood and growing up in um, a family that w- we were just in a situation that was was really difficult. The medical systems kind of forced us to stay in poverty. Yeah. Um, my sister had a number of I think she's had 30, 35 surgeries by this point. Um, mm. So all, all the resources went to kind of care for care for her as they should. And, right. and at one point, you uh, identified that your dad made slightly too much money, just slightly. She, yeah, he crossed the threshold of the federal poverty level, which then forced them to take my sister out of the ICU with her face wired shut. Oh my gosh! Because it's either you pay the medical bill or you get you take. And so I don't know if the medical systems would ever do this now, but back then they're like, pay your bill or take her out of the ICU. That was like, that's like rough. what do you do? That's right. Rough. And so, and it wasn't like your dad got double the amount. He just was the poverty level is so low and he made just a little bit too much. It's like twelve thousand like, a year or something for so now he's, five. Oh yeah. my gosh. So now you're getting further behind because you moved ahead too little. Five dollars <laughs> over the limit. Right. Five dollars, Jake. Yeah. Five dollars, yeah. you're yeah. out. Now you owe fifty. <laughs> That's you take that five yeah. and pay us fifty. Yeah, the, the, the math just breaks down, right? Oh, right. Pretty no quick. Logic. Yeah. So ha- having that experience of, uh, and, and I don't know, I don't know the right words, call it extreme poverty. We, we scrapped our way through it, thinking about like homelessness and, you know, watching people, you know, figure out how to throw together their little home with their tent and their tarps and whatever. And, and like you said, tying to the boulders, much easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a, a point of connection. So we, we dumpster dove, we were gleaners. If you know the word gleaner, uh, it's, it's a good mm-hmm. one. Um, yeah, that's, that's how we much ate. better than yeah. dumpster diving. Oh, Andy, yeah. how old are you at this yeah. point? Uh, those between the age of, you know, five and, and 15, we kind okay. of just survive, survive. So, yeah. so I started working when I was nine. That was when I got my first job and really, really kind of haven't ever stopped since. But the, the deep, the deep side of that is the emotional trauma of being the other. So I knew that I was right. poor. Right. And I knew that those around me weren't. And I didn't know what it looked like and felt like to be in the other side. Mm-hmm. I just knew what it was like to, to feel poor. And then when you're in, I think I think about like the the margins, the marginalized, like I was kind of visualizing it last night, the piece of paper and you can move the margins to pack more words on a piece of paper if you want to. And you're running your college papers or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so that's or like the, other way around. the margins or the other way around, right? Less, right? Um, yeah. I never did that. <laughs> um, so I think about like the marginalized and this is how I kind of visualize my own childhood is those on the edge. We're on the, we're the ones on the edge. Yeah. And so it's just kind of think about like if I'm on a cliff, and I'm on the edge of a cliff and the wind blows 
you don't have margin. You go over yeah. the cliff. Yeah, you're right? right there. Yeah, that's a good visual. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So if you yep. if you do have margin, you step back 10 feet. The wind blows. You get knocked over. You scrape up your knees. Maybe you get a little dirty, but then you pick up and you move again, right? Yeah, you're still on the so, playing field or paper. Still on the, you can still, you're still on the paper, right? Yep. That was my kind of experience in life is being on the margins for many, many years and trying to figure out how to get more into the middle. And we didn't have the tools to get into the middle. We didn't have the resources to get into the middle. Okay. What does that mean? Like, so this is one of the, the you've already mentioned a couple of things that break the trope, right? The stereotype one, a job at nine and, and working in the mines ever since, not the literal mines, but very you know, fields, but yes, very yeah. fields. there you go. There you go <laughs> Two, uh, toughing it out with a family that somewhat intact. So not destroyed kind of thing. And then thirdly, very interested in moving ahead and constantly the tenacity and the temerity to think that you could do that. All of these things sort of break the stereotype that's propagated, which is, you know, why they're homeless or struggling, lazy, don't want to work, no ambition, those people. So you're getting all of that othering, but it's not actually true. It's not who you are. Mm -mm. And as I've unpacked this even deeper, get, I'll get to my homeless story in a minute. Yeah. But what then I did experience was the flip side of it, being a white male in communities. When I finally made it to a school that had resource, I was set up. I mm -hmm. was taken care of. All the systems aligned to what I needed. Mm. I ended up with all of the scholarships, all of, you know, free food at school. They waived my sports fees. I got discounted instruments. I got everything I needed to actually make the switch. Now, emotionally and mentally, there was still trauma yeah. that need, needed to get dealt with, which kind of leads into my homelessness, houselessness story. But the physical care, the Maslow's hierarchy, basic stuff was that was that was given to me. Um, yeah. And I can say my experience with my friends of color, that's not how many of them had. This, they didn't have the same experience I did in getting out of the, the, the difficulties because of again, my, 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 my white privilege, basically, it's kind of right. set me up there. So, right. So Jake, that's also true. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And Jake and I work in Halifax. One of the things I think that was mo biggest learning for me in because I didn't know what I didn't know as we started to do, say, the Sunday suppers at St. Andrews was that it was a meal where everybody came like men and women and their kids and little families. And they would come from across the city just to just to recognize this condition or these issues uh, can come into anybody's life. Uh, if the circumstances are right. One of the things, Andy, as I'm listening to you, and I really appreciate what you just said about, um, you know, uh, getting to the school and the system, the, the system was in place. Once you could access it, it kind of lifted and, and, and did what it was supposed to do in many ways. Mm -hmm. I often think about these stories or when we hear it or, you know, I think the Hollywood versions are the individual grit and resiliency mm. of the person. Mm. They pulled themselves up. They found a way. And and maybe some of that, of course, is is true. But I, I wonder what maybe you'll get this in the next part as we get dig in deeper. But I'm, I'm listening for what's the role of community? Like what would have made a difference in sort of thinking back? 
but also what what is the role of the people who are around? So we are in community of some sort. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm guessing. What is how, how does that help or make a difference? I appreciate you bringing that up. My my wife the other day we were kind of re- reframing my childhood story just in another way, and, and she said, "Andy, you, Portland raised you." And I was like, "What do you yeah. mean?" She said, "Portland yeah. raised you because she's she's heard all my stories and." And when I'm being chased by the gang kids with their baseball bats and trying to steal my bike or whatever, we had these signs on the windows, which allowed us to like literally run into the house without knocking on the door. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good neighbor or neighborhood watch or whatever we had. Yeah, I remember that when I was a kid, too. Yeah. So I would literally run into the house. Hey, can you call my parents? And they're like, no problem. Like, this was normal. Right. So community, that's like one slice of community, an example of how even though we were all on the margin in mm-hmm. Northeast Portland. And so, but that, but they raised me and we had, we had a very strong community that took care of each other. We, we ate because people opened food pantries in their basements that the community took care of us. The churches yeah, that, put us on the trees, you know, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. How did that come across? Like I, I, um, um, there's a story, uh, who's the, who's the big guru in self-help? Um, what's his name? A big, tall fella, uh, Andy Robbins, Anthony Robbins tells a story and he's right. He's, uh, talking about how nothing means anything. We meet, we bring meaning to it. It's actually very scientifically accurate. Um, but he, he grew up a similar situation to you, Andy. I don't know if you knew this. And one Christmas, they were like, no food. His dad is angry. The family's feeling desperate. They knock on the door, big box, brought it in, and the dad lost it. Like, he just mm. erupted in anger because all he thought in this moment felt was shame. He mm-hmm. felt this was degrading. People shouldn't do this. It was like pointing a spot on his failure, spotlight on his mm. failure. Whereas Tony said, oh, my gosh, I'm not alone. Like we're we're not going to die. <laughs> Completely different way of seeing it. And so in this situation, how did your dad react? Like what was the you were as a kid were thinking, okay, I'm not alone. There's houses I can run to, people bring food, churches put our little names on their Christmas trees and we get looked after. But did, was this a point of stress as well for your parents? Beyond just not having enough to make it, but even being helped. I don't I don't know. I'd have I'd have to ask. I haven't asked them that question. Huh, if it okay. was a point of stress uh, okay. for them. I know. Um, you know, they've always been some of the kindest, most giving people in the world. And I think they learned that from what they experienced. So it's mm-hmm. that they're, they're, they're in that same kind of class of people of they will give you the shirt off their back right. when they don't have it, which has yeah. taught me to give generously and right. as much as I can. Yeah. Like, this is my yeah. whole, like my highest value is that. Yeah, your internalized value, you you determine how you see and the meaning that you ascribe to different situations. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you ended up in a car down the river. (laughs) So (laughs) so I think you you nailed it with the word shame, though. That's that's an important one as part of the story. So 2008, I had been accumulating real estate. I had some houses and condos. Um, I was creating wealth for my family. And, you know, without getting too deep into the story of what happened, my my wife at the time and I split up. And um, I had a couple of major catastrophes with the houses and all of the margin, all the money I'd saved to deal with pipes breaking, things like that. Yeah, yeah. It got gobbled up pretty yeah. gone. Flipping right? houses is very, very risky. Yeah, if you, it, was, it was not it was risky. Speaking of no margin, yeah. 
So that was a poor choice to do. Um, Okay. (laughs) If it it worked out, we'd all be like, oh, you're such a success. Look at what you did, your industry. Yeah. But I tie tie it back to my childhood, like wanting something more because of that scarcity mentality of like, I don't have enough. I never had enough. Never had enough. Yeah. And so I, I saw this opportunity kind of running up to the 2008 recession and housing bust. I was like, I can buy real estate. This is amazing. And yeah, because anybody at the time could buy. They were giving me zero down loans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was happening. So uh, my wife and I split. Uh, she's home with our one-year-old in our house. And I don't have enough. She's staying home, staying home with our kiddo. And I don't have enough to pay rent somewhere else. And as part of this kind of separation, moving to divorce, we also kind of broke up friendships and all of those mm. things that we had kind of our community around us mm-hmm. splintered. Because you have to choose one or the other. You can't be friends with both. We've all seen that Seinfeld right. episode. It's the Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Seinfeld Because <laughs> I'm looking right. at Jake because we have talked about this. You, you're gonna, let's yeah. go with this yeah. person. Yeah. So we, we made decisions of like who are going to be your friends and who are going to be mine. And it was like this very trite, like, wow, yeah. okay. So I crawl back to my parents and I'm like, mom and dad, I need help. I don't know. Where, but but we had also need, we needed to work through some stuff ourselves. So, you know, I'm 30 and I'm not going to. I'm not going to move back in with them. Plus they were too far away from work and emotionally I couldn't handle being in a house with them. So that was just, again, kind of the underbelly of all this whole thing. Right, right, right. So they called a friend and the friend said, yeah, I've got a vacant house that my, my mom just died in. You can, you can move in here for a little bit, but will you remodel it while you're there? Okay. Cause I have splitting houses. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. F- fair trade. So vacant yeah. house, I've got a room full of stuff, whatever could fit in my car. That one wraps up. Call my parents again. Hey, do you know anybody else? Oh, we've got a friend named Tom, a World War II vet. His wife just dies. So now I'm like moving into these houses. Oh my goodness. Of like random pattern. (laughs) Hey, mom and dad, let's just cut to it. Has anybody passed lately? Like that's that's really. (laughs) I'm just going to need some. Yeah. No. So this happens maybe, I'm going to say five times. Yeah. I have no money. I have two jobs. I'm teaching at a university and I have an economic development job. I'm working these jobs. Okay, so those time. jobs don't fit your circumstances. Do they know about your situation? No. It's not like you're walking around saying, hey, I'm... No, I would not tell. I, right. I did not have a boss that was one that I could share these kinds of things with. Wow. And so no, nobody at work knew. Nobody knew that I was right. homeless at the right. time. Once all of the hey mom and dad phone calls wrapped up and I didn't have any more connections and all my friendships had kind of moved on, I ended up in my car. I have no other options. I don't know what else to do at this point. Right. And you are in the space now at this point where you could, well, now it's what, dial 211 or whatever it is. If you needed to find resources, it would feel like you have the competencies to do that. I managed programs. Funded programs, you know, millions of dollars to nonprofits to help them serve the homeless community. Like I was the project manager at the time of these organizations that yeah. helped oh, these wow. people on the street. Right. Yeah. So this was my yeah. this was my job. <laughs> yeah. And still you're thinking the car. Now that's a good option at this point, because there was nothing else available realistically and, and so it, yeah it goes to this like so there's shame there's a lot of shame like who and what the hell happened 
you know, I th- I'm thinking this to myself, like, how did I get here? Yeah. And, and as I see as somebody who's on the street, I, I often think to myself, like, what happened in their life that led to like something big, some kind of trauma, little T, yep. big T, something happened where this is their best option. And which is where I like, this was my best option. I had a clothesline in the back of my 1993 Ford Explorer and I hung up my dress shirts and I showered at work and that was my best option. Like that's for how long? Oh, I don't know. It was a few months. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you've de- you've described the conditions, but you've said you've revisited shame a few different times. What what's the anti- antidote to shame in this particular situation? But I'm wondering, like, if if people who we encounter might be experiencing the world the same way, full of shame, which is now a barrier to accessing services and support. If we were working sort of the other side now, knowing this, having heard from you, knowing that people may be experiencing this. What should we do? How should we respond? What would have helped? Shame can, I think, can go into a couple different directions. You can, you can take it into the addiction space. Like you, you start covering your shame. Mm-hmm. You don't. You feel so horrible that you are unlovable in your mind yeah. as somebody who experiences deep shame. Yeah. And so, like, okay, I'll just drink, you know, right. or I'll use meth or whatever, and that will that will make it. Or you know, pick your addiction. There's all kinds of stuff out there, right? Addiction services, I think, are really important to make sure like those organizations that I've spent time with that do it well in the community space usually attach some kind of mental health piece to it. Um, So that's that's one side of it. Um, I think, you know, the faith community needs to be heavily involved in this work. And there's I've got issues with them, like a lot of people. And yet they have a, a community that can be that can lift things up as well when done well, when mm-hmm. done uh, with empathy, with inclusion. I think they need to be involved on some level. It's not a this isn't a government problem to solve. It's a community problem. to solve. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about that all the time. Policing, safety, all of that. And for us, one of the things that came out well, and I think is how you framed it, Jake. It's how you framed it with um, housed and unhoused. And since then, I've been trying to meet and talk to unhoused neighbors in my community to to just learn their name, ask a little bit about where they stay and that kind of thing, just to uh, begin to address this issue that you've raised, which is a, just this feeling of lack of dignity. Mm-hmm. I'm unlovable. I'm the other. And, and that is just horrific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on both sides. Because the, the housed neighbors think, yeah, you're right. You are the other. I would like you out of my neighborhood because you don't belong here. But who knows, you know, how many people on the street have this kind of very unique story to say, this is how I got here. Because if we heard those stories, I think a lot of us would think if one thing had been different in my life, I could see this for me as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and finding myself in this kind of uh, strange reality. So if you were imagining an Andy Reid in downtown Portland right now in a tent on a sidewalk, and you were walking by. Okay, so you're two people in this weird little analogy. <laughs> you were walking by. How do you talk to Andy at that point in a way that is dignified and it kind of addresses the compounding issues on top of this shame in a way that is uh, helpful? I mean, super basic. I make eye contact yeah. for first period. Yeah. Like start that for six months. Just try to make eye contact with people. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. To jump on your line here a little bit, there's a woman here, every time I walk by, and she, uh, sort of a shorter black woman, uh, maybe in her 50s, I, sh- I could tell she knew some folks in the neighborhood, but every time I walked by, she gave me the squinty stink eye, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know you. Because I'd look at her in the eyes and say, hello. I wasn't sure what her story was. It took like five times before she said hello back. Mm-hmm. She remembers right? you, though. She knows who you are, right? Yeah. yeah. So that that's that's number one is eye contact. And then this, the second is a pretty pretty simple one as well. Not simple, not simple. How are you doing today? Yeah, because you can get cursed at. I've been cursed at at that question. Yep. Right. Yeah. But it's okay. That's that's not it's okay. It's not the point. I would say that I. I mean, this is me speaking to me because you gave me that scenario. Right. Right. Um, it's different if you are. You know, I'm a, I'm a larger six foot one, two hundred pound guy. I'm not small, and maybe it's different if I am. You know, a woman trying to walk down the street in Portland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's just going to be a different story. There are just gender issues, things to deal with, safety issues, things like that. So, and, you know, with, with that whole thing, you know, like, like, I don't know what the numbers are. It's something like one in six women have been sexually assaulted in their lives. So you have the, the othering of women, right? Like yeah. that story is true that, yeah. as well. And yeah. so it's not that like, go say hi to every person who's on the street. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm like in our scenario for me, this is what I would do, but I'm not, I can't say that every person has to take that same path. Do you feel it would have been helpful to have sort of a, after saying hi and passing you a few times that you would ever say, Hey, have you, do you know about this place to stay or like to be proactive in problem solving and jumping in on? I mean, just thinking back to the moments and, you know, there were, there were stressful times. And again, I just felt a lot of shame about how did I end up here? Like right. this is, I shouldn't be here. Right. I've made it out of poverty. I should not be sleeping in my car. What happened? Yeah. And so I didn't make eye contact. Like I didn't want to look at people. Yeah. 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 So there's also that. Right. right? I wonder, I wonder uh, the play that's happening in that scenario too, between shame and guilt. So if the person going by, mm-hmm. I mean, there's this immediate uh, need to fix in some situations. So instead of getting to know it's let me give the money let me give you take you to get a sandwich let me get into the fixing you must be hungry and make a range of assumptions about what must this must be mm-hmm. like but i need to do something because confronted with this makes me feel uncomfortable so i have to do mm-hmm. something I have to, otherwise i i have to be more reflective about why i feel guilty or why i feel mm-hmm. like you know with that 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 fine line between guilt and gratitude. I think there is a fine line somewhere. And I, yeah. I know I'm very blessed. I have lots of stuff. And, yep. but in this moment, now I feel really weird about it. Yeah. I was really, really <laughs> thankful on my drive in until yeah. I got to this, the stop sign and they start squeegeeing my window. And now I'm like, ah, yeah. Yeah. what do I do? Yep. I wonder. Where I have gone in terms of like the systems, so we could focus our energy on the extreme cases, the person living in the tent on the street in Portland. But then we also have you know, the foster kids and we have the kids that are living in hotels and we have a whole community that is unhoused that are basically couch surfing. That was a portion of my homelessness was the couch surfing, living in a vacant building, living in a vacant house. And I think there are many, many of these stories as well. And so when I think about homelessness, houselessness, unhoused. If somebody wants to make an entry into this space, 
And it feels a bit extreme. Like I'm not going to go run a marathon for my first run. I'm going to, I'm going to start walking and then maybe I'll go for a one mile jog. Probably going to get a cramp. Going to have to stop and stretch. It's going to feel terrible. It's going to feel terrible. And so there are, there are ways to enter the work that are safe for me as somebody who is housed, who needs a slower ramp than just jumping into this massive issue that is way more complex than my $15 sandwich is going to fix. Like, <laughs> right. it's not going to fix anything. <laughs> well, it's not going to fix anything. You talk about this, though, in the, your, your stages of volunteering. It's very, it, it tracks very similarly. Yeah. About yeah. how to get involved at, in, the, in some of the same ways Andy's talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. The first stage of uh, experiential learning or volunteering in our case with employees is to give them an experience where they can just ask new questions about themselves, mm-hmm. about what they believe and how they act. Like just, uh, oh, should I be looking at people in the eye when they, I thought I was supposed to look away. That's what everybody told me, right? Don't, don't make eye contact. They'll want something. So just hearing some of that from somebody who's been there, who knows, you think, wait, is, this is different. That's first stage. Second stage is why are there so many homeless? What can I do? you start to intrinsically get motivated to do something about it because there's something in that work that lines up with your own identity and is energizing, Mm -hmm. even though you're giving, because you're moving from I'm helping those people with their problem to maybe this issue belongs to both of us. And maybe there's an opportunity to learn about it and co-create some solutions together. I mean, nobody in second stage is really that sophisticated, but by the time they get the third stage, you know, they've experienced it and they, they know what they're talking about. And this issue, Andy, you would be a third stage guide. And since you have this firsthand experiential knowledge and you've been both sides and you are a six foot one male representing the, you know, the, iconically the power structure of the United States at this mm-hmm. time, uh, what is your assessment now of the situation in Portland in terms of, you don't have to get into the cause of it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mm-hmm. historic. But how does a city address the issue in your mind? Because w- this is tied to how Halifax and Fredericton and other maritime mm, right, provinces right. have taken steps, some good, some bad, and everything in between. You've been on both sides. What's the insight that you can leave with our audience to consider? You know, access to housing is, is clearly a major, a major thing. That's going to be, first and foremost, how cities, I think, respond to this. They're going to throw money at building buildings, creating spaces. I get it. That's a big part of it. We recently did a survey, and I think 50% of the people on the streets in Portland said that they had a mental health issue. So you just start unpacking that, and you realize that without mental health resources, you're not going to make a ton of progress. So Yeah, the housing is not going to work. Yeah, that's a tool for a different it's life. A it's tool. not a solution. Yeah. And I worked with people in these these housing projects, you know, just I think of a woman who came from the East Coast to the West Coast and she had escaped prostitution and just leaving her room was a hard thing to do. Yeah. Wow. And we were like writing resumes together. And, and so like the writing of the resume was not what she needed at, in yeah, that right. moment. She needed some kindness, love, yeah. encouragement. You are safe to come out of your room here. Like you will be safe. And and here's why. So that mental health, that piece is, I think, really important. So I I would say that if if cities want to do something right, that they're going to throw money at that. I remember a few years ago, I was looking at some of our statistics and it was like something like 75% of the men on the street were veterans. 
And so yeah. you just you start talking about PTSD and all of those things and you know yeah. what what war has done to people. So that's all there. The other thing is, I think poverty is a piece. I'm a big believer in you start with building the systems. This is a 20-year, 30-year problem that we're going to have to work on. So you work with the kiddos. Mm -hmm. You resource them with good nutrition. Thinking back to my childhood of having to fight to eat and that's insecurity, get kids good food. I don't know if that's like a direct correlation between one and the other homelessness and kids that are hungry. <laughs> but, but in your estimation, it was part of a scarcity mindset of a threat all the time to not have access to food. And it goes to Tony Robbins source of shame, not being able to ride. I think it weirdly, we have way too much of it. And yet it is an easy solution if we could just distribute it more equitably. That's right. And laws around food. It's an interesting moment. I worked at the, Oregon Convention Center, and we would throw away thousands and thousands of pounds of food, yeah. tens of thousands of pounds of food, and, and how just the systems are designed to throw it away, not to use it. And then you get into the environmental impact of all of that. Like it's all connected yeah. uh, in many ways. So I think nur you know, nourishing children, food, emotionally, providing them good structures and systems, support for families. The men that I've talked to in the African American community, that came out of the same neighborhood as me, yeah, 75% of my friends ended up in prison. So let's talk about that, stepping back to like the laws that moved yeah. them towards prison. I think it's a super complex problem. The quick triage mental health piece is really like, if you're gonna wanna try and make an immediate impact, making sure those resources are abundant, not just available. Well, in, interestingly, the first responders to mental health issues in downtown Portland tend to be police and fire, right? Because that's who the other the house neighbors call, and that gets us back to some of our original conversations, Jake, about police may not be the best trained group to deal with these kind of issues, and yet that's a situation that may not in. be. Yeah. Okay. Are we still back there it's exploring mental health issue. Here's okay. your gun and taser. Uh, yeah. Figure yeah. that out. Yeah. So Andy, when you were talking there, I didn't want to interrupt it. You used a word that threw me off, but I appreciated you said it wasn't about writing the resume. What you needed was kindness. And then you said love, which I kind of circled that word mentally because I didn't expect to hear it. And it tracks along with where we often talk about taking a human-centered approach uh, mm. and really pushing back against systems that oppress and, and create these conditions that we're constantly trying to re respond to. But I, I appreciated that because that is something that often we don't think about. I think that that final comment on love is, is the right one. I just remember sitting with her and we would cry together. Mm -hmm. I see you. And you're you're beautiful. You're a beautiful human being. I'm sorry this happened to you. Yeah. You know, having that empathetic response is really those that have done well, I think, in, in case management. And that's it's it's God's work, my gosh. Sitting in those communities and trying to figure out how to even respond to this is so difficult. Without that that space of love and kindness and empathy, we don't have much. Like the systems will fall apart. And I think that underscores the work that anybody who's privileged enough to have a house, a roof over your head, even if it's only temporary and things may change down the road or whatever, but for right now, to just do the internal work of humanizing the other. Like mm -hmm. it's it's both sides of the equation that need to come together in this. And there's a lot of hard work. I like the analogy. You're going to run a marathon. You have to start with a walk. Just taking a walk mm -hmm. around your neighborhood and and seeing the unhoused neighbor as 
a human being first step. And what does that mm. mean to you? What does that mean to how you act, how you respond? Is there another way to see it other than threat? How, why do I others so easily? What does it mean to have to live in a neighborhood where unhoused and housed live together in community? What kind of sharing and back and forth can happen there? These are the kinds of things that I think we could be doing, uh, even if we can't deconstruct the huge, yeah. massive systems next week. Well, and I, my final, final thought is exactly that. We have all been othered. Yeah. yeah. And we know what it feels like. And it's horrible when it happens. Yep. And yep. so if we can tap into that, then maybe we've got a chance to see somebody else as more more human than we than we we did before. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for being so vulnerable and thanks for putting up with Jacob's you know intrusive. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even cry. I was expecting to cry. I usually cry <laughs> when I talk, so it's <laughs> it wasn't too painful. It was great oh, to have it's, you. It's Thank been you. Great. All right. We'll see you on the next project. All right. Thank you. This has been a Podstarter production. production.